Wow, the Tampa Bay Rays, they complete their two-game sweep of the Yankees, winning 4 to nothing. Charlie freaking Morton allows just one hit through six innings. The bullpen picks him up in the final regular season game at the Trop this year. Maybe some playoffs are coming. Only the second time this year the Yankees have been shut out in the Rays, maintain their second wildcard spot in the American League over the Indians. We'll talk a lot about the Rays on this podcast. The Bucks, meanwhile, they restructured the contract of Jason Pierre-Paul. We'll tell you what that means, and they have some notable injuries as they prepare for their game in L.A. against the Rams. And we've got college football to discuss. Are the Florida Gators better off with Kyle Trask at quarterback than they were with Felipe Franks, who's likely to play quarterback for Florida State when they host NC State? And USF, they may be over their heads when they host Southern Methodist. We'll talk college football with Matt Baker of the Tampa Bay Times. We've got all of that on this edition of Sports Day Tampa Bay. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times, along with producer Steve Versnick. Hey, folks, it's still hot out there, and if you're like me, it means your electric bill is still out of control. Mine's well over $300. If you want to save 90 to 95% on your electric bills, listen to me now. May Electric Solar, that's, they're a locally-owned company, and May Electric Solar is the safest solar available. They don't use high voltage like other companies. And May Electric Solar has a 25-year warranty on all their equipment and labor. They have a full showroom. They're open weekdays. You can see their products. Now, May Electric Solar has been around for 12 years. They've earned a great reputation with their customers and their peers. And there's many other solar companies out there trying to imitate them and use their great name. But remember, they don't use subcontractors, and they do not subcontract for any other company in any other way. Everyone knows it has to be May all the way. So stop the insanity of these out-of-control electric bills and start saving now. Call May Electric Solar at 727-819-2862. And if you call right now, you can also receive a 30% tax credit through 2019 by changing to solar energy. Call the real May Electric at 727-819-2862. Well, Steve, I'm looking at this line that Charlie Morton posted with six innings pitched, just the one hit. Uh, He was phenomenal. He's been their rock the whole season. He gets his 16th win. I got to be honest with you. If there's one game that you have to win – and whether you're talking about the Rays or any team right now in the American League, maybe even in baseball, Charlie Morton, I think, is the big is the best big game pitcher going right now. Well, he's definitely at the at the top of that list, or you know, in a short handful there. And look, if you look at the way it's lined up, so he's pitching on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Normal rest would be Monday for a game one sixty three. Look at that. Or if they if there's no game one sixty three and they make the playoffs then Wednesday for the wild card, he would probably get the start with a week's rest. So it looks like, I mean, the way it's set up is Morton will be pitching the first Rays, if you call it playoff game, 163 is technically regular season. But if Mm. the Rays make it that far, whether 163 or the postseason, it looks like Charlie Morton will start. Although, look, come Sunday, it's probably all hands on deck. And, you know, maybe he goes out in short rest Sunday if they need him, you know, in Toronto if that's what he needs to win. But... But they've got it set up to where Morton will most likely pitch the, for lack of a better word, one-game playoff. Like I said, 163 is technically the regular season, but it's a playoff game for the winner goes on. Yeah, and I mean, the way it's setting up, you know, who knows? I mean, the Rays may actually, they, you know, one of these teams is not going to make it, and it's going to be sad for them because they're all so close and they played so well down the stretch. I mean, remember when the Rays didn't have a good record at home at the Trop? It was just maybe barely over 500. They've won 14 of their last 16 games at the Trop. We were complaining that they were three over 500 at home. Yeah. At like 34 and 31. They finished 48 and 33. 
95 wins already, okay, and three games remaining with the Toronto Blue Jays, who won't, aren't just going to lay down for you. But you figure even if you take two out of three, which you probably need to do if you're going to you know, maintain some, some uh, advantage to make the playoffs, you're talking about 97, possibly 98 wins. That would set the club record. 97 is the club record for wins in a regular season. 98 would set that record. Now, in, against Toronto, the Rays are 12-4 and four this season. So hmm. taking two out of three is very reasonable, even you know, if Toronto's going to put up a fight, which most teams, look, you're playing a your division rival. You love nothing better than to spoil that chance. Yeah, if you, you know? don't believe me, just look at the Chicago White Sox as we do this podcast. They're about ready to finish uh, the bashing of the Cleveland Indians in Chicago. Yeah, Castillo um, just had a three-run home run in the seventh inning to give the White Sox an 8-3 to three lead as we take this. Yeah, so, I mean, listen, unless barring a big comeback, that's a perfect example of it, right? Another team in their division, the last thing they want to do is see them go to the postseason. Mm-hmm. And and this becomes, you know, in, in a time of the year where there's really, you know, not much to play for, guys are getting their golf clubs out, that sort of thing, uh, all of a sudden, you know, you're you're playing meaningful games, maybe not to you, but certainly for the team, um, across the field from you, and so there's tension. Um, it's a playoff-like atmosphere for that ball club, and you can play the role of the spoiler. And if it's a team that's in your own division, for example, Oakland goes up to Seattle. they got a four-game series there. So it's going to be tough to sweep Seattle in four games, and I think you know their record's around 500 this year head-to-head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Toronto, and don't forget to Toronto. I mean, when you, if you say think they're going to lay down, they've won seven of the last ten games. There you go. They're coming in, you know, a little toasty, considering they have a you know 400 winning percentage this season. So, and a young mm-hmm. team that look, you know, young kids sometimes don't know any better. No, that's true. And uh, I, you know, I, I think that what the Rays have done is is phenomenal. You think about all the walk offs and and you know, look, their schedule as the way it's set up was looked much more difficult playing the Red Sox, who while they weren't in the playoffs, are still a very viable team with maybe arguably the three best hitters in the American League in that lineup. Um, and then, and then over two games, they managed to allow one run against that New York Yankees lineup. Yeah, that was impressive. I mean, the Yankees uh, earlier had a streak snapped of two hundred and some odd games of not having a scoreless game. Um, so you know they don't. That doesn't happen in that lineup very often. And, and just as we're talking now, the Angels take a one nothing lead on Oakland in the second inning mm. as Taylor Ward hits a solo home run. Well. The, the Rays have put themselves in a good position. And I was uh, listening to the broadcast and, you know, they were saying that uh, for this current road trip, not knowing how long they would be gone, that they packed for as much as nine days <laughs> to, uh, I mean, if you get into the three-game tiebreaker thing, it becomes yep. insane, right? You could have a game 163, a game yep. 164. I mean, it's just, it can go on and on. Well, if they make the playoffs this weekend, let's say they're going to play in Oakland for the wild card. You know, assuming mm-hmm. let's say Oakland holds on and Rays take it, whether there's a game sure. 163 or any of the playoffs, they're going to go from Toronto to Oakland. That game will be played Wednesday, so they're leaving Wednesday right. night. That's a week later. Mm-hmm. Then, if you win that game, you're going on to at this point Houston, but it could be Houston. the Yankees, right? So the first two games are there. You're not back till Saturday night late, mm-hmm. so you're leaving Wednesday night. So it's a week and a half you have to pack for on this trip. It's ten days. That's right, and uh, and I, I would imagine. As it sits right here today, you know, the Yankees would not play the Rays in the first round. My guess is they're happy about that. I mean, look, I'm sure they they would like to have, you know, the number have the best record in the American League for a multitude of reasons. But for the first round opponent, not that the Twins are any slouch, but I would think that they would probably be happy not to see a team 
in the American League East, even though they've had a lot of success with them throughout the year. Um, but certainly the Rays have their pitching. Mm-hmm. You know what's so impressive to me is, is in addition to Charlie Morton about this series, about these last this last homestand, was how every single guy coming out of that bullpen was lights out. I don't think anyone had a bad outing. I really don't. Um, you know, w- whether you're talking about, you know, Poche even or – I mean, you name it. Every guy went out there and was just was just nails. And you can see – how you know this pennant race and how this the excitement of of what they're about to you know to do here potentially um has really got them laser focused you know every at bat's a grind um you know every pitch is uh uh you know is purposeful and they've just they've just really literally grinded out these victories in such a way that you know they're they virtually expect to win and will find a way to win whether it takes them 12 innings, 11 innings, whatever it is, they, they've just done an amazing job. This has been some of the most enjoyable times to, to be a Rays fan, I would imagine, since 08. I mean, I, I know they've made the playoffs since then, but this team, you know, is it's predominantly a young ball club. It's got some, obviously, some key veterans. Um, you know, the pitching staff and what they're trying to do with that is unique. But Kevin Cash has just done an amazing job. If you look at the the number of wins over the last two years, it's even more impressive. But you know they they have played well enough, as has Cleveland, as has the A's, to deserve to go to the postseason. So um, it's going to be really interesting to see if they they may even have more games at the Trop this year. Well, look, I mean, we were disappointed last season that the Rays with ninety wins did not make it in. All right. Cleveland currently has ninety three. And presumably they may win at least one or two more this year and may not make it in. Tampa's Mm -hmm. already at 95. Oakland's already at 94. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the kind of season that someone's not making it when five teams from your league make the playoffs. I mean, we talked about, you know, last night in the podcast when there were teams back in like in the 90s, the Giants had like 103 wins and didn't make it, but only the division winners were going. You didn't have two wild cards in addition. Right. And so to have 90 three, four, five, or even 96 or seven wins and not make the playoffs is just crazy. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure we'll be talking some more Rays baseball and get you set up for their Toronto series as we continue on with the podcast this week. Meanwhile, I was uh, at the Bucks, of course, on Wednesday, and the early news was that the Bucks had restructured the contract of Jason Pierre-Paul. Of course, he had the automobile accident and the neck injury has been rehabbing from that. I think a couple things about this deal is that, number one, uh, it's for one year, $10 million, and he's el- eligible to become a free agent at the end of the year. I would expect that will be the case regardless sort of how he plays. Um, but number two, it's sort of a pay-as-you-go. Um, the Bucks have protected themselves in that, um, you know, he, he gets a certain amount of money um, regardless of whether he plays or not, I believe. But a certain amount is guaranteed, but for the most part, um, there's a lot of $250,000 per game, um, you know, tri- type uh, payments that if he's on the 46-man roster, you know, um, then he would be eligible for that money. So they protected themselves. They've created about $4.5 million more of cap space, and I think it's the best indication yet that they think that Jason Pierre-Paul will be back and will be playing with them uh, before too long, at least maybe after this, you know, five-game sort of roadie that they're about to go on in the next six weeks, including the trip to London. In the meantime, of course, they have Shaq Barrett, 
who's got eight sacks, and he's already earned some bonus money, but he's on a one-year deal. And so presumably they'd want to re-sign him to a long-term contract. Those talks have not begun yet, uh, I am told, but they will begin uh, certainly before the end of the season. There's no immediacy to it. He doesn't become a free agent until March, and I think they probably feel like they have a little bit of home field advantage since he's in the building and he's playing for Todd Bowles in a defense that's bringing out the best in him. But um, he's going to get paid. He's going to have a nice payday, and uh, I know that the Bucks will be interested in trying to lock him up. So we'll see uh, if Jason Pierre-Paul can make it back, you know, probably sometime in uh, late October, early November. But I think the signs are at least that the Bucks expect that he might, and they've already taken some steps uh, toward that direction. As far as injury goes, not not really great news, quite frankly, for the Bucks. at least on Wednesday. Chris Godwin, of course, their star receiver, number two to Mike Evans, he has a hip injury, and he did not practice on Wednesday. And Vita Vea, uh, the defensive tackle who's been playing really well with Ndamukong Sue, he has a groin injury. He was held out as well. Of course, Devin White. Their rookie linebacker is still out with a knee injury, so no signs of him coming back this week. Devontae Bond was back, so um, good chance that he will play. We've still got several days before the Bucks get on the plane on Friday to head out to Los Angeles, so a lot of times you know, guys can uh, uh, start to feel better and, and maybe limited one day, and maybe by Friday or so uh, they'll be questionable, and, and some of them will be a game-time decision, but... They certainly could use Vita Vea and Chris Godwin in this game because, you know, the Rams with that really explosive offense and Todd Gurley, you're going to need those defensive tackles. And Domicon Sue returns home to the Rams. We'll have a lot to talk about that. I wrote a column in the Tampa Bay Times about whether or not, you know, the Bucks are trusting Jameis Winston or not trusting him again. Of course, we remember Sunday after the interception, they ran the football nine consecutive times. I talked to Bruce Arians about that, talked to Jameis Winston about it. And, uh, you know, some, some things you want to read there on tampabay.com. All right, Matt Baker joins us now. And, Matt, let's uh, look back and ahead uh, from last week's college football and see where we're heading. Uh, Florida was uh, having no trouble with Tennessee. You were at that game. Another good game by Kyle Trask. They got Emory Jones in a little bit. Um, let me ask you, how do they think this uh, quarterback thing's working out? So far, so good, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Kyle Trask finished, what was it, 20 of 28, had the most prolific passing game, 293 yards of the Dan Mullen era. That's more than Felipe Franks has ever thrown at UF. Almost had the Gators' first 300-yard passing day since Luke Del Rio did it against Kentucky in 2016. Um, I thought he looked pretty sharp. I mean, there were obviously some some issues, you know, that they had a, he had a fumble on a strip sack. He threw two picks, which weren't necessarily bad he just kind of tried to force something that and made you know decisions that didn't work out um and emory jones i thought added a nice little element with the run game i'm still curious to see what exactly he's going to do going forward if they're really going to try and get him into more than just a series or if he's just uh, very much a once in a while change of pace but you know so far for the gators they got to be pleased with it destroying a, a bad tennessee team that frankly was even worse than i expected um, and then, you know, coming up against Towson this week, it should be more of the same with the, those two, Kyle Trask and Emory Jones, getting more reps and just more playing experience to actually uh, get them ready for the, the Tiger games coming up that matter against Auburn and LSU the next week. Let me ask you, because somebody asked me this question, and I, I didn't really have a great answer for it, but is it possible that, you know, 
for all that Felipe Franks had done for you know for his uh, <clears throat> prospects as a potential NFL player, those sort of things, um, that they're, the Florida Gators are actually better off with a guy like Kyle Trask at quarterback simply because he completes more balls. He may not be prone to as many interceptions, and it seems like it seems like the playmakers are, are have the ball in their hands a lot more. That's a really good question. I mean, <laughs> message. I tweeted it out on Saturday. There was one of uh, one of Trask's first completions was a pass down the right side to Jacob Copeland, who, and that's like a, a message board dream right there. You know, it, the most popular player on on any roster is the backup quarterback, right? Oh, Absolutely. the guy we have the bomb, bring in the next guy. Well, if the next guy was really that much better, the coach is probably <laughs> be no better than we do. He'd probably be playing. <laughs> That's right. That's and, and Jacob Copeland was a you know a blue chip recruit who uh, has been ham- hampered by injuries and hasn't been able to get going. So that was finally the the message board was like, oh my god, here it is, the future, the future of the Gators, the saviors are here, and that sort of thing. Um, I think there there might be a little bit of credence to what you're saying because I think Trask has a lower or a higher floor. Um, he's not from what we've seen in limited action, he's not going to go out and make a ton of really bad reads. I mean, again, he threw two picks, um, but as he kind of explained it afterwards, like he knew what was going on. It's not like he misread it. He just said, I mm-hmm. think I can get it to my guy to make a play, you know, kind of 50, 50 balls. And they didn't work out again. It's a, it's a, it's picks. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not good, particularly one that was uh, in the end zone or in, in deep in that area. Um, but they weren't, it wasn't like he, he made a mental error. Frank's, I think, his issue was it was all between the ears. Um, there, there were either issues where he couldn't uh, feel the pressure correctly or he couldn't diagnose the defense correctly, and that would cause him to be late on throws and that sort of thing. So I think in some ways, maybe Trask is better suited for this offense in a way. I mean, I, I go back to something a couple of the receivers said after the game, which was Trask would let plays develop. I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and kind of putting words in their mouths, but that's okay here. Um Felipe, when he would see pressure or feel pressure, his initial instinct was to kind of run and, and to scramble. Trask's initial instinct is to kind of move around and shift in the pocket rather than scramble, and that let him scan the field a little bit better. I mean, if you mm-hmm. go back to the game, his first throw of the game was a 43-yard bomb on a post to, to Trayvon Grimes over the middle. He was feeling a little bit of pressure. Grimes could see it, was trying to get open, beat the safety, and instead of Trask scrambling and picking up five yards or something— Trask kept scanning the ball, scanning downfield, went to Grimes, his third option, by the way, his third read, and threw a, a pretty nice ball. The, so I, I think Trask has maybe the higher floor. But if you want to compete for national championships, I'm not sure Kyle Trask is the guy because he doesn't have the ceiling. Um, again, thinking of just on that that one bomb to Grimes, if Felipe Franks were making that throw, Felipe's got a much stronger arm. That could have been a touchdown just because of the separation that was there. So if a little bit better throw, a little bit more in front of him, a little more arm strength, that could be a touchdown. The other side is that Felipe Franks probably would have taken off and gotten five yards and wouldn't have seen Grimes streaking open on the post over the middle. So there's definitely some pros and cons with both of them. I do think the fact that, you know, Trask has had multiple opportunities to win this job over the years. Um, you know, It's not like the Gators starting quarterbacks have been great. You know, go back to the Austin Applebee's and Luke Del Rio's and Leaks out here getting some some starts and, and freak Felipe being kind of up and down. But the fact is, Trask has been a backup and there's reasons for that. And so I'm not trying to you know dismiss his performance Saturday and, and the week before against Kentucky. Both of those were fine. But I also don't think he has the I mean, he doesn't have an NFL skill set the way that Felipe does just in terms of physical tools. 
you know, it's you, you chronicled this, but uh, it's fascinating to me that this was his first start in any level since high school. I mean, is early early in high school as a matter of freshman fact. year freshman year of high school he, he was starting that blows on, me he was away starting the freshman it's, a team yeah. well it's yeah. it it says it says a lot because i mean he's clearly talented right i mean you don't play the way you did against kentucky and and play the way you did against tennessee and and not have talent um he was just in some you know it's it's a lot of bad luck rick i mean he's he's in at manville high school in texas and Derek king who is just a, a great, great athlete, happens to be the guy in front of him. Well, what are you going to do? Like, I mean, yeah. that's just, you're just stuck. And he could have Change transferred that. <laughs> yeah. He, he, he exactly. could have, but, he, but yeah. to his credit, he said, this is, this is where I'm going, this is where I've been, and that's a very yeah. rare thing. And, and the same thing mm-hmm. at college, you know, he was waiting his opportunity. Some of it, as I think there were more talented players in front of him, certainly in the case of Felipe Franks, but then there were also issues where he would just get banged up at an inopportune time and just bad luck. So, I mean, good on him for, for being able to make the most of it so far. And you know, I think what's kind of what's happening w- across the country, and I mean, certainly with Derek King, with the bizarre, bizarre decision this week to, to redshirt the rest of the season to come back for 2020 at Houston, I think that just is another sign of how rare Kyle Traska is these in, in this transfer portal era. He's he's 100 percent committed to his team, even if it hasn't been the best thing for him personally. Yeah, I'll get to Derek King here in just a minute. You wrote a story about that, but uh, I did also want to ask you a little bit about Emory Jones. Um, at some point, you know, you I guess you can look at this two ways. I mean, he he brings uh, certainly a different sort of package in, in his ability to run the ball. We haven't seen him throw it as much so until he becomes a threat throwing I'm not I'm not exactly sure how defenses are going to react differently to him but is it almost in a big game could it be disruptive in the sense that you know you're going to have certain you know series where you say this is Emory Jones's uh, turn you know what I'm saying like can that can that be disruptive or do they just think hey we got two quarterbacks that bring a little something different here we're going to use them both they think the second one, um, yeah. but I, I think your concerns are completely justified. And and I asked Mullen that last week when he was starting to say, you know, to reaffirm that they were going to play Emory and, yeah. and Kyle Trask, both of them. Uh, I said, are there any downsides that you see to it? He said, no, not really. I said, okay, so you're not concerned about either egos getting in the way because everyone, mm-hmm. you know, there can only be one starting quarterback, and it's not like right. receiver where okay, I go play this series, you play the next. Or I go in on this package, you go in on the next. It's not like that. Um, quarterback is just a different breed, and the egos are, are bigger, um, generally speaking. And he said, no, as long as they're listening to the, to the right people and listening to the stuff that matters, the ego's not going to matter. And, and he also wasn't concerned about the rhythm aspect of it either. So to, the way he sees it, and he's obviously had success with this in the past, with, with Chris Leak and Tim Tebow, to name the most obvious one. But the way Mullen and the coaching staff see it is, We've got two quarterbacks who are both very skilled at their own things. Go let you know, go get them in position to do the best things. Give the you know, make the defense prepare for something different, and hope at the end of the day it works out. You know they play Towson, and you're writing a story about this. We see these games pop up from time to time, even in the middle of the season or the start of season. Typically, um, we know they're mismatches. One of the reasons I hated covering college football, particularly when I was just on one beat, which was Florida is that there were so many of these games that you knew going in as the fans do, this is not going to be competitive. This is not what I'm paying, you know, in their case, uh, good dollars to see 
or in my case, spent spending time to write about <laughs> um, and, dri- and driving to Gainesville and back. Um, so I'm wondering, like, are we? Is this going to be the norm for for the future? And and uh, th- there is there is an upside to this, though. Absolutely. I'm. So there, there's two parts to that. First is what are we seeing in the future? And I think some of these games and games like it are going away. I mean, that's just that's just a fact. You know, Alabama and Nick Saban is on record saying, I'd love us to play all Power 5 teams, but I want us to at least play 10 because, you know, they're not going to play 12 Power 5 teams unless everybody else is. Um, right. Florida's on record. Going forward, they are scheduling where they're going to play, you know, the eight SEC games, Florida State, and then another Power 5 team every year. So if you're playing... 10 of those, it only gives you two non-con opportunities. And that means fewer opportunities for a Towson, for a Tennessee Martin, for a Florida Atlantic, which is slightly different, but but same principle. So I do think we are seeing uh, some of the power schools going away from them just because, I mean, the attendance for these games is, is not good. Um, the Tennessee Martin game a couple weeks ago in the Swamp was Florida's lowest since 1990. Um, and three of their six lowest attended games since 1990 have all been one double a games. I'm not like breaking any news here, but these are, these are just facts that the administrators who, who uh, make the budgets, they have to think about in terms of how they're going to balance the books going forward as everything, you know, the costs skyrocket. So the other aspect of it is, so why do these games still exist for Florida? It exists because, well, it gives them a nice little break. Um, Towson actually kind of came in some ways it came together a little differently than the others. Florida and a lot of the other programs want to play an FCS team every year because it's an easy win, lets you get your backups in, that sort of thing. But um, the Gators are playing two this year because they were trying to schedule, I think something fell through, they were trying to schedule like a Sunbelt Conference USA team, but those guys were wanting you know, $1.5 million. Towson's doing it for 500000 So Florida's saving a million dollars by doing this. And, and that $500,000 that Towson and Tennessee Martin those type of programs are see from this is massive, Rick. I mean, uh, Tennessee Martin's playing two SEC teams. They played Florida, and they're playing Kentucky later. That gives them a total of a million dollars. Their athletic budget, their entire athletic department budget, was nine point two million dollars a couple of years ago. So they're wow. getting you know ten percent, more than ten percent of their athletic department paid for on two Saturdays. Um, even Towson, they don't view these just as paycheck games. But the five hundred thousand dollars they're getting allowed them to fly to their game against Maine a couple weeks ago, rather than taking a charter bus ten hours each way and trying to play a football game after that. So it's a huge boost for those athletic departments, which is why, in some, you know, I know fans don't want to see these games. I don't want to cover these games, which is why I had, didn't cover the, the Tennessee Martin game and why I'm not covering the Towson game this weekend. Um, but they certainly mean an awful lot to the to the other guys that are coming to the swamp on Saturday. Yeah, I think it's an important point as a, as someone who played baseball, which wasn't a, a revenue producing sport at Arkansas State. I was happy to see them go and take their uh, take their licks. It wasn't at Georgia at that time as they did a couple weeks ago, but um, it does it does really fund a lot of the non revenue producing sports, and so we're grateful they can do that. Florida State, meanwhile, they uh, took down Louisville. This was a an important win to say the least. Any win right now for Willie Taggart is big in his program. Uh, the bad news, I guess, for them, or good news, depending on how you look at it, I suppose, is that James Blackman, uh, their quarterback, became injured. But Alex Hornibrook, who we've talked about on this podcast with you before, um, came in and did a credible job. And this time the defense 
held on and was able to uh, come out of there with a W. So let's start with Blackman. Uh, what are you hearing, Matt, about uh, his injury, and, and uh, will they need a, need Hornibrook to step in against North Carolina State? It, Blackman is very much day-to-day, as, as all of us are. Um, but but Black, <laughs> Black, Blackman was so at true. practice. Um, I, I don't get a good sense yet of whether he's going to be able to play. I'm sure he would like to, but it's just a matter of you know just how comfortable he is. So I, I, you know, Hornibrook was going to be in the game plan against Louisville in some capacity, regardless. So I would expect right now him to be in the game plan in some capacity uh, against NC State on Saturday, regardless. But we'll, I mean, we'll just kind of see whether Blackman's uh, capable and, and, and ready to play on Saturday. That's interesting. That uh, you know, I. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Completely understand it with Emory Jones and Kyle Trask. I'm not so sure I'm following why. Um, and I know Hornibrook, you know, this is his fifth year. He's a transfer and all that from Wisconsin. So he either plays now or never. But I, I'm, I'm curious a little bit because Blackman's numbers seem to be okay as far as touchdowns and interceptions and, mm-hmm. and this sort of thing. What, why did they feel the, the need to uh, sort of incorporate Hornibrook? That is a great question. I don't have a great answer for you. I mean, no. Willie just said they, they thought Alex has been playing well and they thought he deserved some opportunities to, to get some reps. Um, yeah. I, I don't necessarily understand it either. Um, I think Alex might be a little bit better runner, um, and, and maybe he, he can fit the offense and what they're trying to do a little bit better than Blackman. I, I actually kind of feel bad for for James Blackman, Rick. I mean, he's a guy who got recruited, um, got recruited under by, by the uh, Jimbo Fisher in that regime. Mm-hmm. Comes in as a true freshman. He needed a red shirt. I mean, I remember watching him in one of the the couple open practices FSU had. That guy was was taller and lankier than I am, which is saying a lot. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my, you know, that guy's got a good arm, but he he's gonna break. He's a, he's gonna be a year or two away. And then mm-hmm. they've got some defections, and DeAndre Francois gets hurt, and he ends up having to go in for a little bit of duty on the, the first game of his career, um, and then starting the rest of the way before he was ready. Now it seems like I mean he, he's a very good, talented passer, but I don't think he's a perfect fit for a Willie Taggart offense and, and kind of just w- what they want to do. Cause he's maybe not quite as mobile as, as what I think Willie would want. So I just kind of feel bad for him at this point. And then obviously with, with the injury and I mean, he's, he's done admirably, I think, especially given the circumstances of his FSU career and the teammates really rally around him, but it doesn't seem like he's really meshed with, with, with the coaches and everything. He took some hellacious hits, too, early in his career, and that can certainly affect a quarterback behind that offensive line that was just porous, and um, you feel bad for him because he's a tough guy. He stood in there and and has taken that abuse. The other thing that can happen, and I'm just speculating here, too, because I I don't know, but I think when, when you transfer from a place like Wisconsin, you don't have any sweat equity with the current teammates. Um, clearly they're going to rally behind the guy that they've been going to war with. And now that Hornibrook has been here a minute and he's gone through the practices and gone through the games, 
and they can see his talent that, you know, maybe now he's earned his right, you know, to play a little more as opposed to, you know, Russell Wilson, you know, doing it in two months at Wisconsin and then boom, they put him in and, you know, he takes him to the Rose Bowl. So sometimes, sometimes, you know, it doesn't matter where you come from, what your stripes were someplace else, you've got to earn it. You got to earn it in your current place. Absolutely. And Hornybrook too, it's not like he was able to join in the second, you know, the, the January second semester, exactly. like some grad transfers mm-hmm. have done in the past, like Appleby at, at Florida. Now mm-hmm. he, he came in in the summer and was kind of a, a, a late addition. So that gave him even less time to prepare. Right. And not only with this, the scheme and the X's and O's, but like you said, with getting to know the guys in the locker room and the guys in the locker room, getting to know him and what he's about. Yeah. That position's all about leadership and, and, and rallying guys around you. Um, you know, you had an interesting uh, nugget last week uh, that you broke about Jim Levitt. I don't know what, what imprint he's had on the defense. Certainly they, they closed the deal last week, which was good for them. But uh, his consulting fee is $80,000. Look, to me and you, that seems like a lot of money. But I, I, I suppose that's worth it to Jim to, um, uh, to do. What, what did you make of the salary they're paying him? And just what, what do you think the future is for him moving forward? Yeah, I, I mean, I would, I would take that. Um, I, I could buy a car instead of my 2010 Civic with 195,000 miles. Um, <laughs> but the, the money, like you said, that's not the, that's not the thing. But, yeah. but college football coaches, football coaches in general, I should say, are just crazy. Like I, I can yeah. just imagine him going a couple weeks into this season and just being bored out of his mind um, yeah. because they're so hardwired because it's such a grind. It's such yep. a grueling job that after a little bit, you're like, okay, now what do I do? Um, and obviously, Florida State needed the help. Um, that was quite clear considering how bad their defense was in the first couple weeks. And this is a, a this is a very nice opportunity for him. Um, I don't. I'm not saying you know. Depending on whether what what happens with this defense going forward, what happens with Willie going forward, there's going to be opportunities there for him to. I'm 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 sure he will have opportunities to get a job on the FSU staff at some point in the coming years, if he wants, um, or this is a nice opportunity for him to continue staying in the grind, uh, getting better, learning from different people that will help him get a job as a coordinator or something somewhere else when the next uh, coaching carousel opens here in the next couple months. So made a lot of sense for him. And again, I can just <laughs> football coaches are set up in such a way that I can't imagine how crazy it would have been for him to be a couple weeks just watching and, and not being out there helping. Matt, uh, USF had an off week, but they're going to host an SMU team that just knocked off TCU. So uh, what kind of a battle are they in for here on Saturday? Yeah, I think they're in for a tough one. I mean, SMU can put up points, put up at least uh, 37 points every game this season. The defense isn't great. Um, but look, FSU can – or excuse me, SMU can score – you know what Sonny Dykes has been able to do in his career. I, I think kind of one of the interesting matchups here is Shane Bouchel, SMU quarterback against Charlie Strong. I mean, Charlie recruited him to Texas, not only recruited him, but started him as a true freshman in 16 to try and save his career with the Longhorns. Obviously, we know how that worked out for Charlie, and we know how that worked out for Shane, who eventually lost the job and, of course, is now starting at SMU. So the way I see it, it's, it's a... Uh, it's a tough matchup for, for USF, and it's one that, that Charlie really needs to win. I mean, obviously they were able to get stop the losing streak in some way, beating South Carolina State a couple weeks ago, but that's an FCS team. 
they've still lost their last eight games against you know, you know D1 FBS teams. So this is a game Charlie really needs to win, and I don't think it's a good matchup for his Bulls, unfortunately. No, it doesn't seem like it, and they got all the momentum coming off that big win. USF had a bye week. That, I guess, might help in terms of the quarterback change that they've made, but uh, I agree with you. I think that's going to be tough. Sticking in the um, the current conference, and I want to go back to this because you mentioned it a little earlier, this story about Houston's quarterback, De'Eric King, uh, this is different than you know others that we've seen where maybe a quarterback wasn't playing. He was the starting quarterback at Houston, so – what what was behind his decision to to put on the red shirt? <laughs> it's it's one of the more I shouldn't say bizarre because God knows this sport has so many bizarre stories. But just in terms of kind of on the field craziness, this this is near the top, or at least in terms of shocking things. Um, I mean, his thought process was: Look, this is not a great year for Houston. They started one and three. Um, but obviously their goals are still in front of them. They can still win the AAC West. They can still win the AAC and, and I guess in theory challenge for one of the group, you know, the, the group of five spot in the new year six, but this, this hasn't gone according to plan. So his thought is let's, let's scrap it. Um, next year, Houston should be a lot better. They've, you know, obviously it'll be Dana Holgerson, their coach is his second year with the program. They've got a bunch of high profile transfers, particularly, on defense that are going to help Houston on the other side of the ball. Then you add in the, the addition or return, I guess, of D.R. King, who is a very, very talented dual threat quarterback. And maybe this Houston team can be really, really good next year. It's in some ways it makes a lot of sense because Houston should be better for it. He should be better for it. Dana Holgerson should be better for it. I just, he's just kind of quit on his team for this season. I mean, that's what it is, right? I, there's not a better way to say it. He just said, no, I'm, I'm good this year. I'll, I'll try again next year. And that's a stunning thing for any position, let alone a quarterback, let alone one of the more talented quarterbacks in the country. So I'm still trying to wrap my head around all of it because there, there, you know, it, it's one of the unintended consequences of this new redshirt rule where players can play for four games without burning a year of eligibility. We saw the first wave of this last year. When, when Kelly Bryant was one of the guys um, was a starting quarterback at Clemson, was going to lose that title to Trevor Lawrence, played his four games, said, you know what, I'm good. I'm going to save my year. I'm going to go somewhere else. Now he's the starter at Missouri. So that was the first kind of iteration of these side effects. And the next iteration is what we're seeing now with D.R. King saying, no, I'm good this year. We'll try again next year. I, I don't know what the next iteration after this is. Um, I don't know if there's a scenario where someone can play a couple games with one school, leave in the middle of the year to go to a school on the quarter system that starts later or something bizarre like that. But this is just the, one of the unintended consequences that I don't think anybody saw coming. Yeah, really bizarre story and a good one that you want to read on Tampa Bay dot com that, that matt baker has written ucf boy i'll tell you just when i thought they were going to move into that upper echelon i think you had them ranked 11th if i'm not mistaken Correct. in your uh, in your poll they uh, drop a heartbreaking game to uh, Pitt. congratulations to Pitt, but it was right down to the wire how much does this hurt them now uh, for their uh, national uh, aspirations i guess um and uh just what, what did you make of uh, that that football game Pitt is such a weird program. We'll get to UCF in a second, but Pitt is so weird because, I mean, they won the ACC Coastal last year. I think they were like 6-6. Six and six. They weren't very good, but they won a bad division, so yay. Um, 
they they beat Miami a couple years ago when Miami was undefeated up to two in the country. They beat Clemson a couple years ago. So they can kill some of the Giants. I'm not, I guess UCF can kind of belong in that. But then they'll go lay random eggs. And so I still have no idea what to make of Pitt year in, year out. They're just a weird, weird program. Um, So I'm not giving UCF a ton of credit. UCF fans uh, on Twitter on Sunday were talking about, oh, this is, at least now we finally get a quality loss, like the SEC teams or whatever. And they can always crow about. But to me, this isn't a quality loss. You know, Pitt's. And the advanced metrics are somewhere around the 65th in the country. They're in a bad division and a bad conference. It's not. It's not great. Um, it's also not. I, I expected UCF to win, but in some ways, this is not unexpected either. You know, UCF won 25 regular season games in a row. You're, you're not going to keep doing that forever. You're just not. Um, and what UCF had been doing, eventually, they were going to get play a team that had, you know equal talent or not much worse talent and somebody was going to get them when things didn't go their way. And I think that's what we saw on Saturday with the, with the defeat against Pitt. Um, going forward, UCF to me is obviously that doesn't change where they are on the 10,000 foot level. They're still one of the best group of five programs in the country um, where, where they are this year. It's still probably going to be them, Memphis, maybe Cincinnati, uh, Boise state kind of fighting for the group of five spot in the new year six bowl. So that's still all their main goals are still on the table. It's just that the streak that had been going on for a while, UCF is finally kind of mortal again. Yeah, that was it. You're right. Pitt is one of those teams that rises up and and, and, and plays the upset thing every now and then. I can't quite figure them out either. But uh, yeah, tough loss for UCF, and uh, we'll see if they can bounce back. Um, Ohio State. Uh, we got some whoa, whoa, national games. Whoa, 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 Rick, what? Rick, Rick, Rick. Yeah. You, you, yes. you, 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 we'll see if they can bounce back. You're yada yadaing over the best, the most important game of the weekend. You know who UCF has this week, don't you? Please tell me. UConn. This is this is not only is this the civil conflict, Rick. This is the final scheduled meeting of the storied rivalry that we know and love as really? the civil conflict. Because <laughs> really? yes. Because UConn, remember, they're leaving the AAC. They might yes, be able to reschedule. That. They might be able to make this work in the future. They've, they've talked about it. But this might be it, Rick. We might be seeing the end of an era, the end of history on Saturday. And with perhaps the final meaning of these two uh, just clashing Titan rivals. And you were just ready to, like, poo-poo over it. I was ready to dismiss it without moving forward. You're right. And it's my <laughs> fault for all those Knight fans out there that are hanging on – Every word that Matt Baker has to say about this rivalry between UConn and UCF. Nice Look, the only 45. people that are happy, the only people that are happy about UConn, really happy about UConn leaving the conference, would be the basketball program, women's basketball program at USF. <laughs> They're throwing parties about this, but uh, but okay, I'll buy in. Is this is this? Uh, I, I think UCF will roll, won't they, in this game? Am I wrong? Oh yeah. Oh no, of course yeah. they'll, they'll destroy them. UConn is, is just god awful. Um, yeah, I, I am writing something later this week on the civil conflict. If I can get my tongue out of my <laughs> cheek long conflict. enough. <clears throat> Here, here's the thing. Rick. Here's the thing. To me, it's one of those things where it shows how clueless the people at the top of college football are because college football will destroy OU Nebraska. They will get rid of Kansas, Missouri, the border war. They will get rid of Texas A&M all, all in the name of money. And then somebody will come up with, well, what if we made this a rivalry instead? No, you can't just 
make something a rivalry with, with two schools on the opposite side of the East Coast and, and make a trophy and try and make it a thing. You, you can't do that. That's not how college football works. That's not how uh, it's not why this game is as, is as special as it is. Because when, when, when UCF fans are, are going to Publix, they're not seeing UConn fans in the cereal aisle with them. No, that's just not how it works. Um, but some, you know, some people thought this would be, oh, let's make up our own rivalry. That's, that's just not how the game works. Um, and to me, this is, you know, I, I've enjoyed using the civil conflict as a punching bag. I've gotten some laughs out of it. But in seriousness, goodbye and good riddance. Yeah, I heard that. And that is more sure. than anyone should ever talk about UConn UCF. <laughs> <laughs> and it will be on this podcast if I have anything to do with it. Um, so <laughs> let's let's move on to the national games this week. Of course, we've talked about all the state schools for the most part. Um, well, before I do that, I want to move. I want to move back uh, to last week with with the all important Wisconsin Michigan game. Which, hey, in my house, we were very happy that the Badgers showed up and showed out as the case may be. What the hell was that with Michigan? I mean, look, I've been a Jim Harbaugh supporter. I know the man pretty well. I think he's a good coach. They're at they're at this point, what are the what's the chirping in Ann Arbor right now about Jim Harbaugh's future? I think we might look back on Saturday as a turning point with, with Jim Harbaugh because up yeah. until then, you know, Harbaugh's done a good job at Michigan. Let's not pretend that he hasn't you know they've won double digit wins i think three of his four years went to an orange bowl went to a peach bowl brought them back from meh to being a good program so mm-hmm. he absolutely 100 percent deserves credit for that however good is not the expectation at michigan the winningest program in the history of college football the expectation is championships starting with obviously in the division then the conference and then national and harbaugh has not come close and I think what, from what we saw Saturday, it doesn't look like he's getting any closer. I mean, it's not – I don't think there's really shame in losing at Wisconsin, but getting trounced the way he did coming off of a bye, mm. I, I don't know. I, so I think we might look back on it as this was kind of the beginning of the end. Um, I, he, I don't think Michigan's going to fire him. I don't think they can do that. That'd be a really hard sell. But I, I wonder how long he wants to stay there. And I think at this point, I have to wonder whether Michigan in some ways would be better off without him. I th- the, the comparison that comes to mind, Rick, when Georgia got rid of Mark Rick a couple of years ago, again, Rick did a very good job there by any reasonable expectation. They were going to, to big bowls. They had a year where they finished, what was it, two or three in the country. If there had been one play a little bit different, they came up, what was it, a yard short of winning another SEC title, and maybe they would have gone to the, the, a national championship. And if there had been the playoff, then who knows how many playoffs they would have been to. So Georgia did fine. And winning 10 games, 11 games is not a birthright. Nobody is guaranteed that in this landscape. But he didn't get them championships. So they got rid of him and brought in Kirby Smart, which was a risk. And it's one that has paid off thus far because he's got them playing at a higher level as one of the you know three elite programs in the sport. I mean, maybe four elite programs in the sport. So I wonder if at some point Michigan has to think and hope that they get in a position and say, you know what, Jim got us this far, and that's wonderful, but he's not the guy to take it to the next level. Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, if Jim Harbaugh is thinking about this or not, he should consider his brand and what that means because he has opportunities in the NFL each and every year. I know there are teams, maybe even one locally, that, is, that has tried <laughs> to see if he's interested in, 
in coaching in the NFL. And, and, um, you know, he still has that resume that was very, very good with the 49ers. So yeah, we'll see what happens going forward. It was disappointing though. If you're a Michigan fan, on the other hand, Wisconsin looked pretty good. So we'll get into their national, uh, hopes here, uh, in a, in a few weeks when, uh, they start coming around teams like Ohio state. Here are the national games. Let's roll through these quickly. Ohio state's at Nebraska. I think college game day may be there as well. Any, uh, any concern for the Buckeyes with the Huskers? No. <laughs> I mean, Nebraska. <laughs> I swear, I thought about it too. Yeah, it's it's not a great it's not a great week in terms of like big matchups, and Nebraska is obviously yeah. a big brand. Ohio State's a big brand, so I understand why Game Day would want to be there. But no, I, I can't see it happening. Nebraska really struggled, you know, barely held on to beat Lovey Smith, uh, your old friend, and the Illini. So yeah, uh, Ohio State's got. I should. I don't see them having any problems. Virginia's at Notre Dame. I thought Notre Dame put up a pretty good fight against Georgia. Yeah, Notre Dame, I thought, performed pretty darn admirably. They don't have the talent of, of Georgia and those top teams. They just don't. So for them to compete as hard as they did and have a chance to win it there late, you know, I came away pretty darn impressed with Notre Dame. Um, Virginia, we talked about them before with, with, with in relation to the Knowles, but uh, you know, they've got some talent there. Bryce Hall, a potential first-round pick at cornerback. Bryce Perkins, a very talented quarterback who you know throws well but can run extremely well. So that's not a gimme in the weird kind of sort of ACC game uh, there between the the Hoos and the Irish. And we'll end with this: uh, the Southern Cal Trojans seem to have quite a bounce back week for themselves, but they go to they're at Washington, so that's going to be a difficult game for them, right? Yeah, and it's a big one for the Pac-12. I mean, I, I don't I think the Pac-12 probably has boxed itself out of the playoff at this point. But if one team is going to have a chance, maybe it's going to be Washington just because of, you know, I think people kind of respect the talent that they have and what Chris Peterson has done over the years. Um, USC really showed <laughs> a lot more life than I expected in the one they had over Utah. You know, I kind of expected them to be to roll over at this point, especially when, you know, not only is their starting quarterback hurt, but their backup quarterback got hurt the other night. Um, but Mac Fink, who had been in the transfer portal, potentially headed to to Lovey Smith, came in, did a very good job to beat a very good Utah team uh, on a Friday night. Um, so this, this one is huge in the Pac-12 and for, for Clay Helton's future out there in Troy. He's Matt Baker, and you can read him on TampaBay.com. He's headed to see the Florida State uh, playing North Carolina State in Tallahassee, see if the Seminoles can make it a couple big wins in the ACC up there. Thanks as always, Matt. You got it. Thanks, Rick. Of course, speaking of football, the Bucks are back preparing for their game with the Rams in Los Angeles. We'll talk to the coordinators, offensive coordinator Byron Lefwich and Todd Bowles, the defensive coordinator, later today. The Lightning are in Florida. They're going to play, of course, the Panthers, their sixth preseason game, only one more preseason game left at home. And then we are a week from the regular season, hard to believe. And the Rays have a day off today before they begin their series in Toronto, but Steve, I got a feeling you might be paying attention to another Major League Baseball game. Well, there'll be a couple. I mean, the A's and Indians will both be playing, but in the afternoon at 12.35, the Reds will be facing the Brewers. The Brewers have already clinched a playoff spot, but Marty Brenneman is wrapping up a 46-year career as the voice of the Reds. Mm. And I've listened to him since I was a little kid. Um, I can remember times uh, Marty always had a, a, an eloquent vocabulary on the air and he would use terms. And I remember going to teachers going, what does this mean? And they would tell us to go look it up, of course. But um, for instance, he would say something about a veritable plethora. You know, you're in middle school going, I have no idea what that is. So instead of looking it up, you go ask your teacher, but 
Um, sure. Marty is a unique announcer. I don't know if there's ever been an announcer who has had more leeway to speak his honest feelings about things. If mm-hmm. he thinks the team stinks, he'll say they stink. If he thinks the manager made a bad play, he will call them out on it. Um, he has often used the line with players that I was here long before you and I'll be here long after you when they complain about something he says or does. Um, but he is a tremendous baseball announcer and I'm lucky enough. I get to call him a friend. I got to work for seven years with him, uh, both running games in the studio and then in the booth with him as well. And, uh, it's hard to believe that. I mean, he started calling Reds games before I was born and I grew up Mm -hmm. in Ohio listening to Reds games and, and getting the chance to work with him and, and Joe Nuxall too, who passed away. Um, who was, they were partners on the air for 31 years calling that's baseball amazing. games. I don't think that's ever been touched or maybe ever will in baseball, um, yeah. calling games together for 31 years. But Marty is a one of a kind announcer, a tremendous individual, um, is a heart of gold, has helped more people than anyone ever knows, and it always has. And, and just, I, I, it's, it's hard for me, it's going to be hard for me to listen to this game today because. That was my childhood, you know, listening yeah. to radio and sports and, and baseball on the radio. And, and, and Marty and Joe on the radio was everything. I mean, they would they called the game, but they talked about their tomato plants and their golf games and, their, and everything else going on in life. And, and, you know, it was their broadcasts were always more than a game. And it's what made it so special even the years when the Reds stunk. And they had a lot of those over the course of time. And those broadcasts were still some of the most enjoyable things you hear on the radio. So Marty Brenneman, after 46 years, is uh, hanging, hanging up the microphone, I guess you would say. Um, mm-hmm. And he's going to go do some traveling with his wife and, and uh, enjoy life and spend more time with his grandkids. And um, it's, I'm happy for him, you know, that, that he's going out the way he wants to and, and you know, not being forced out of the booth or anything, but it's sad for everybody else who doesn't get to hear him call games anymore. And there's a lot of tremendous things on, on the internet. Um, MLB Network, Matt Beskersian did a tremendous, about a four-minute video honoring Marty. Um, mm-hmm. And there's tons of them you can find out there of announcers all over the place. You know, I know Vin Scully's probably the greatest storyteller that I've ever heard calling baseball games, but I think Marty's the best announcer I've ever heard of doing uh, the whole broadcast, everything about it. And we think about what we've lost in baseball with just those two guys alone. There's been some others as well. People in Tampa, believe it or not, that are older than me or mm-hmm. at least my age can remember a time. Of course, the Reds trained uh, at Al Lopez Field in Tampa for years and years, and even going back to the Big Red Machine days. And those games were broadcast on WFLA mm-hmm. for many, many years because there wasn't baseball uh, in Tampa Bay, obviously. And you got those games. Sometimes you get the Atlanta Braves. Um, but Marty Brenneman and Joe Nuxall, who I got to meet, uh, my dad, you know, of course, you know, longtime baseball guy here, um, played professional baseball. He used to have an old-timers game. Joe Nuxall would pitch in it. Um, one of the youngest, what was he, 15 when he pitched in the major league? Yeah, league? still the youngest player ever to pl- play in a game. Uh, he pitched yeah. it during – it was basically during World War II. He pitched on Hamilton mm-hmm. night, which is a suburb of Cincinnati. And right. they, he was in high school, and they had him pitch. And it, was, it took him eight more years to get back to his second game in baseball. Yeah, it's crazy, right? But um, but yeah, Marty Brenneman is uh, is truly one of the best baseball uh, voices out there, and uh, and so Reds fans will miss him, baseball will miss him. But I'm glad that uh, 
that he's walking away too soon um, and can enjoy his retirement. A funny story about things. Al Lopez Field. So Marty Brenneman in 1974 is hired to be the voice of the Reds. Well, the, the, the guy he replaced was Al Michaels, who called games for three years, and then he moved on to San Francisco. <laughs> Whatever happened to him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you believe in miracles? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So Marty's calling his first game in Tampa at spring training. He's got Joe Nuxall, and he's, you know, it does the introductions. It's, hi, I'm Marty Brenneman along with Joe Nuxall here at Al Michaels Field. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I knew he was big. I didn't know they named the stadium after him. So that was That's that was great. the first lines he said on the Reds radio network back in 1974. And he's he's gotten better. <laughs> yes. Well, he, he's tremendous, and even in the Hall of Fame in 2000. And you know the thing and you're I on the plaque. I know. Well, <laughs> the thing that's I love. Another story. Yeah, that's a whole other story. But the thing I love best about Marty is he's one of the greatest ball busters of all time. Like he will bust your balls like no one else, but he can take yeah, of it. Of course, too. you you mean you mean baseballs? Is what, oh, sure, what sure. Saying. But I mean, you know, yeah, just, yeah. you know, with practical jokes or giving somebody a hard time, yeah. he is a yep. master at it. But he can take it too, and he he will be the first to make fun of himself. And um, you know, he just it, the whole point is we always said that when when we worked with Marty and in the booth, the minute forty five between innings was some of the best times you'll ever have. <laughs> Those conversations that happen in a minute 45 during the commercial breaks are priceless and phenomenal, and most of them I can't say on the air. (laughs) Nobody had a hot mic back in those days recording it, I'm sure. That's too bad. Oh, that's been lost. So, yeah, farewell. Happy trails to Marty Brenneman. Um, Those are going to be great memories, of course, for, uh, for all the Reds fans and just for baseball fans in general. Hey folks, uh, if you're like me, uh, speaking of, uh, things we need to take care of, how about those electric bills? Uh, they're going up and up. You want to save 90 to 95% off your electric bill. Listen to me now. Call my friends at May Electric Solar. They're a locally owned company. They do a great job. Um, you can save right now. If you call 30% tax credit through 2019, that's being offered for changing to solar energy. So call the real May Electric at 727-819-2862. For Steve Verstick, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. Have a great day, everybody. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.